broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Midtown Business Radio. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's CW. Thank you for checking out this week's Midtown Business Radio show. We continued our monthly series with IRC Wealth with the CEO and founder of the company, Dave Ragland, joining us along with Vice President of Business Development, Joe Shum. They brought with them Chet Burge of Virgin Associates. And these financial experts were talking about buying and selling businesses, the implications for the business owner and entrepreneur early on in the business's life cycle, where they need to begin to lay the groundwork for the possibility of actually selling the business one day, because those early on choices can really have some impact down the road. And they also talked about situations like in the sale of a company that is an ESOP or employee stock option plan, where the employees of the business, even the lowest of the low on the totem pole, are shareholders in the business and actually can have quite a windfall of cash coming to them when the business sells. And they talked about how they interface with those employees, helping them make the best financial choices of what to do with those funds, whether that's paying off debt, taking a cash payout, or rolling it into other financial vehicles such as IRAs or 401ks, whatever the case may be. We got into all of that. Here's Dave talking about how they coach employees and entrepreneurs who are coming into a large lump sum of funds due to the sale of a business. Check it out. You always hear about the person selling the business for a ton of money. But here's an opportunity to see everyday people sell a business because they were part of the sales process. And they receive an amount of money that may be similar to a small business that actually sells. And so you have a lot of people that were receiving somewhere between 500000 and a million dollars. So you recognize that that is a lot of money, but it's not enough money to retire on. Right. And so we face that a lot working with our clients and recognizing that even though you may look to sell your business and actually complete the process, it's but a piece of your overall personal financial plan. We went both from a very generic, broad-based concept to the technicals of when am I going to get my money? How can I roll the money from the ESOP into my IRA to I'm 30 years old, I'm going to get $70,000, and I don't know whether I should cash it out and pay down my house or educate my kids, or should I allow it to grow, and how much money would I have when I'm 65? And So just a wide range of questions that it was fantastic for us just to be there to help them understand the opportunity. And here's CPA and tax expert Chet Burge talking about the importance of choosing the correct structure for your business at the outset that gives you the greatest flexibility so that as your business grows and maybe comes to the place where you want to try to sell, you have the measure of flexibility from a corporate structure perspective to be able to handle that correctly. Check it out. Most businesses, when they get started, I just had a meeting this morning with a gentleman who has had the opportunity to become a consultant and so therefore getting a 1099 and he sees this business growing he sees adding other partners to this business and the conversation always starts well what kind of business should I form and the default for me or what I believe to be the best option is to form a limited liability company it provides the most flexibility for the business owner from both a structural and a tax perspective they can ultimately be taxed up to four different ways whether it's like a sole proprietorship or a partnership or an S-Corp or even could be taxed like a C-Corp. So initially, many times when clients come in, they don't—they really don't know how big this thing's going to become. They, right. they have dreams, they have visions, they want it to be something special, but they're not sure. And so by having that flexibility, I've seen clients take it from a Schedule C on their individual return, which would be a sole proprietorship, then grow up, make an election to be taxed as an S-Corp, add additional owners, you know, and just see it grow and morph and benefit from the tax benefits that they, they can get from those different tax structures. Stick around. we got the full interview with Dave Ragland, Joe Shum, and Chet Burge coming up next. And good afternoon, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on the Midtown Business Radio Show. Thanks so much for making us a part of your day today. Been in a series with the folks from IRC Wealth, first Tuesday of every month. We've been having them join us here in the studio and sharing some information on things like reinventing yourself. Uh, Many of us go through our careers over a number of years and find out maybe halfway through the game that uh, I really 
have a love of something else, I really want to pursue it. We talked about how to do that effectively to be able to balance both personal risks, talking it with your significant other, as well as being able to have a good financial plan to be able to accomplish that safely and, and have a measure of success. We're going to be talking today about some real life examples of situations that often occur in the business world where a company has been able to grow and, and develop a good business and going to sell. And in those cases where they have employee stock option plans, where the employees are actually part owners, if you will, of the business, that often means for them when that sale goes down that the employees of the business are going to be coming into fairly substantial, oftentimes, amount of money at one shot. And obviously, it's easy to not handle that very effectively, kind of go crazy and blaze through the cash and pretty soon you're left with nothing. And so Dave Raglan and Joe Shum from IRC Wealth are here with us. They brought a guest with them today and they'll be able to talk a lot about how to do that very well and, and manage that effectively so that that golden parachute that you get to cash out with at the sale will continue to grow for you. So guys, thanks for taking some time. Good to see you again. Good to be here. Do you want to introduce us real quick to the guest you brought in? Absolutely. He's a guest. He's also a, he's an affiliate of ours. Uh, we partner on things together. It's Chet Burge from Burge and Associates CPA. Uh, it's a firm in Decatur. And uh, we've been working, our firms have been working together now for several years. And uh, Chet has also participated in some of the other things we've done. Um, we had a live panel discussion uh, webinar uh, a couple months back and Chet sat on that panel as well. So um, we've worked together in the past and continue to do so now and in the future. And it just seemed right to have Chet here as well, because in addition to being, you know, a, a, a tax and business professional, he also is a business owner and has bought and sold businesses and advises people on such. And then, of course, you know, Dave and I deal with uh, our client base all the time that go through that. So and we've met some of those people in earlier shows mm -hmm. that were successfully sold uh, businesses. Yeah, Candace. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yes. That was pretty exciting. Huh? Mm -hmm. So um, so with that said, it just seemed right. And the, the impetus, too, uh, for us was we just started. We kicked off our educational series this week, an employee educational series for a client or a group of clients whose businesses, I'm sorry, whose business was just recently acquired. And so they were concerned about, you know, some of the folks there uh, getting, you know, big jackpots on uh, ESOPs or ESOPs. And, you know, they're a very benevolent organization and they've all come up together, boats rose together, and they wanted to do something for their for their uh, employee groups. And so they brought David in to uh, discuss how to take that hard earned opportunity and perpetuate its wealth. And so we started that today. We had three sessions. We've got another one tomorrow and two more the next day. And so the combined conversations, what's going on there, plus what we've had with Chet in the past, it just seemed kind of cool to continue that conversation about buying and selling businesses and, and, and what happens and what can happen during those times. So you guys are actually going out to that business now and you're working with the employees who were receiving the the buyout or not the buyout, but the benefits, if you will, that inflow of cash and how, giving them some advice on how to approach that. Yeah. So we took a, a third party sort of approach today. It was very generic, talked about, um, and this is the, what the conversation is going to continue over the next few days as we see uh, a lot of their employees and a couple of hundred, I would think, but, uh, but mainly it's a conversation to say, Hey, you know, you've, this is not like the lotto, right? You earned this opportunity. And now here are the different paths you can take once that money is delivered to you. And what are you going to do with it? And what do you want your financial future to look like? And so, uh, that conversation, uh, was really interesting to see the different, and you've got all different forms of, employee there in terms of their uh investing and financial you know sophistication right and so uh, it was very interesting to listen to the questions to see the reactions and and to see the considerations going on in their head you know do i go for the f-150 <laughs> you know or the bass boat or right. am i gonna you know try and earn money while sitting on the beach when i'm you know in my 60s so so what in this particular example what kind of amounts are these people getting well the great thing about this is we had such a wide range we had people that would receive anywhere from 50 to 100,000 to those people that might receive between a million and two million wow. in the same uh, class. And we also had different age ranges. We had uh, some people as young as 30, 
and some as old as 65. So you had a lot of dynamic questions during the educational process. And can you share some some of the typical questions that you were getting that from these folks that, that are trying to decide what they need to be doing? We went both from a very generic, broad-based concept to the technicals of when am I going to get my money? How can I roll the money from the ESOP into my IRA to I'm 30 years old, I'm going to get $70,000, and I don't know whether I should cash it out and pay down my house or educate my kids, or should I allow it to grow? And how much money would I have when I'm 65? And so just a wide range of questions that it was fantastic for us just to be there to help them understand the opportunity. Yeah, that's got to fit right into some of the discussions you have. I, I read your book, Wealth Made Simple, No Really. And some of those things that they're asking you fit right into that because one of the pieces of that is getting rid of debt. So I can imagine that's probably a pretty big question. When does it make sense to pay off debt with an influx of cash like that versus, like you talked about, continuing to have it be out there and now let it continue to grow or maybe supplement it? But that's probably a good question for someone to ask. I also think, too, it's kind of neat to look at the other side of the coin. So, you know, the employee side, which is who we were speaking with today, have, conducting a conversation with them. But how did they get there? And that they had a really aware and inclusive and benevolent management team and ownership that said, you know, we want everybody to benefit from their hard work. And that was kind of cool, too, because, you know, not every company affords you this opportunity. You go, you work, and you leave, and they may or may not sell. And at the end of the day, you know, you, you're basically, you know, a tool in the box. And here, you know, you had this broad ownership across all different income streams and sophisticated levels of, you know, engagement and, you know, roles in the company. And, you know, I watched them walk into the room today in over three sessions and you know you see a guy who's got muddy boots and you know probably was out there loading stuff into trucks and he gets a slap on the back by the ceo and he turns around the the the, the truck driver and walks up and has a candid and uh, informal conversation with the cfo and they really were uh, family-esque don't you think in the way they behaved with each other i think a lot of those because they all felt that they were all part of this thing right it was a corporate culture of being inclusive and what was great about this opportunity was to you always hear about the person selling the business for a ton of money but here's an opportunity to see everyday people sell a business because they were part of the sales process and they receive a, an amount of money that may be similar to a small business that actually sells. And so you have a lot of people that were receiving somewhere between 500000 and a million dollars. So you recognize that that is a lot of money, but it's not enough money to retire on. Right. And so we face that a lot working with our clients and recognizing that even though you may look to sell your business and actually complete the process, it's but a piece of your overall personal financial plan. Now, in a situation like that, when there's an ESOP set up in place and the business goes to sell, what happens to the ESOP itself? Does that stay in place or, or does it kind of depend, I guess, on the buying company? Actually, that's a technical question. And the answer to that is... The sale proceeds does go to the ESOP. The ESOP gets permission to terminate from the IRS. So anywhere between 60 and 120 days after the transaction closes, the ESOP then gets permission to terminate. Those funds are then transferred to the employee's 401k accounts. And then from there, the employee gets to make the decision of, I want to roll this money into an IRA. I want to take a check as a distribution, or I can roll it into the inquiring company's 401k if they I have I got one. you. Okay. So the, so the ESOP itself is essentially abolished by the sale in terms of that. So if I want my money to continue to grow and that kind of thing, then I just need to be looking at the other types of options out there, like you talk about IRA or 401k, whatever the vehicle may be. Correct. I think another lesson that, that uh, is learned here, too, though, is when you're structuring a business uh, as it evolves over time and you're thinking about... How do I make my business grow and get stronger so I can actually sell it, you know, for, for a real profit, for real gain is that the, the lead, um, not sorry, the leadership, but the, the people in the room have been there a long time, David. Don't you think? I mean, we have people there, several people over 20 years 
that you know in in times like today it's hard to keep people in the room right and five years is a long time yes and i mean we had lots of people in the room in double digits 10 15 and even up to 20 years so they did earn every bit of the benefit they're about to receive but i think the business's benefit was they had a very solid stable workforce that they were able to develop a culture on and you know if i'm structuring a business for sale that's a really nice asset to be able to provide that's a you know to market out to my business say hey look all these people really know their jobs they've been here this long anyway that was something i noticed as i watched this thing progress i've been talking with financial experts dave raglan and joe shum of irc wealth partnered with the show to share some information on a monthly basis to help you learn all that you need to about getting your wealth program for your business on good footing as well as your your financial strategy for yourself so that maybe you can retire one day if you want to and do so with some measure of quality of life that you relatively anticipate. You brought with you Chet Burge. Where does Chet and his team fit into this? I know that you all collaborate on some level with uh, IRC Wealth and the things that you're trying to do. Where does that fit into what we're talking about? Well, early on in the process, structuring your business for sale has a lot of important tax considerations and you need to be partnering as a business owner with a CPA that has the knowledge that Chet has in structuring businesses because there are ways to better structure if you intend on selling down the road and I'll let Chet get into that. Most businesses when they get started I just had a meeting this morning with a gentleman who has had the opportunity to become a consultant and so therefore getting a 1099 and he sees this business growing he sees adding other partners to this business and the conversation always starts well what kind of business should I form and you know, the default for me or what I believe to be the best option is to form a limited liability company it provides the most flexibility for the business owner from both a structural and a tax perspective. They can ultimately be taxed up to four different ways, whether it's like a sole proprietorship or a partnership or an S-corp or even could be taxed like a C-corp. So initially, many times when clients come in, they don't they really don't know how big this thing's going to become. They, right. they have dreams, they have visions, they want it to be something special, but they're not sure. And so by having that flexibility, I've seen clients take it from a Schedule C on their individual return, which would be a sole proprietorship, then grow up, make an election to be taxed as an S-corp, add additional owners, you know, and just see it grow and morph and benefit from the tax benefits that they, they can get from those different tax structures. So. Without getting too crazy technical, because I know we don't have a ton of time to devote to that topic, but can you give some minor differentiations between those types of structures if i'm a small business owner listening today that might yeah. make me think because i remember when i was setting it up i just did llc yeah. we were a partnership um but i you know to some extent i, I almost did feel like i'm like uh you know right just pick one right <laughs> so you know i i like to keep it simple and so to start off by making by setting up your llc Normally, that first year, a client does just get taxed on their individual return, a Schedule C, like a sole proprietor. Like they've just hung their shingle out. They have their small little business. They're not going to file a separate partnership or corporate return. It's just going to be on their individual return. So I, I like to see clients just start out simple. Um, and then when they progress, one of the main things or benefits they can get is they can save on self-employment taxes by making certain elections. And they also can have some aggressive retirement planning and retirement contributions as the income grows and they make other decisions related to the business. A small business owner that owns their own business, let's say they're just, you know, a consulting business that's successful. They don't have any employees. Maybe they have a few other contractors that work for them. I mean, they can contribute up to $52,000 into a retirement account fully deductible every year if they have the right kind of revenue and they've structured it. Properly. So, so we take those things into consideration. Let's minimize the taxes if we can, but then let's see what the biggest retirement contribution your cash flow can afford and how does that fit into the tax structure. And again, I had that same, spent an hour this morning with that client talking about all those implications. And quite frankly, he was excited about the opportunities. He saw that initially he wasn't going to be able to make a big retirement contribution, but he saw the ability for his business to grow and to make these large contributions for, you know, his growing family. I mean, he's got three kids under six, but he sees this business to be successful and he can make some great contributions, you know, for the, his 
future and his family's future. For the for the business owner that's you know starting out, new entrepreneur, just getting started, they may think to themselves, "Gosh, I can't I can't afford to have a CPA right now. I've just got to do my thing." I mean, what what kind of investment are they? Are we usually talking about as a range to get involved with this yeah, kind of planning? Absolutely, that's a great question. So, um, you know. Different CPAs are going to be different, of course. If you go to one of the big firms, it's going to be a lot more expensive. But normally we tell our clients, if you want to execute a plan where you're going to make an, an S-corp election and take advantage of some of a lot of these tax advantages, you'll probably pay your CPA about 1200 to $1,500 a year to execute that plan. I mean, if you go to your local CPA who's serving small business as well, I think that's kind of the price tag that you'd be looking for. That's pretty minimal. I mean, that's a cell phone bill, basically. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. sure. On a monthly yeah, basis. Yeah, right. Sure. right. Absolutely. What you're doing is you're making your investment in your future, too. Remember right. the ability to put away large amounts into a retirement plan over time. You think about what $52,000 a year over 20 years is going to grow to. And your ability to do that starts with having a very good CPA on your team that can help you get there at a reasonable investment. Uh, one of the things that we did in the last three blog series that we put up is talking about what this specific subject, the solo paneer. You know, used to be called a freelancer. Am I an entrepreneur? Well, I'm one person right now. What are the things that I need to understand? And one of the overriding concepts in that series was even if you're a freelancer, if you want to call yourself a solo paneer, you're in business. Think of yourself as running a business. What's my product? What's the customer want? How am I going to best sell it to them? How am I going to best market it, deliver it? Because we've had a lot of businesses that have gone from solopreneur, one person. Now there's five people. The business that we were talking about early in the show was 250 people. That started with probably 10 people. So getting your house in order early makes the process that much easier on the backside. What about for that small business owner just getting started and maybe they're not taking money out? They're leaving it all in the business. Does that m make a difference in terms of how they want to do things and file taxes on their business? Yeah, that's a great question. So if it's generating income that you're reinvesting in the business and you're still going to have to pay tax on the income it's generating, and, and that is a great question and issue that a lot of my small business clients, you know, are face. We'll, we'll meet at the end of the year, we'll do the tax work, and we'll see a tax liability because the business generated income. And they'll go, well, none of it's in the bank account. And we talk a little more. <laughs> and that's because it's in inventory or it's in, you know, the, the employees that they hired and trying to build yeah. the bench to grow the business. And so that is a difficult, you know, situation where, where even if the business is having a little success, it's not showing up in the bank account because you're reinvesting in the business. And there could be a tax liability, even if there's no cash in the bank. So again, it's always good to, to talk to a professional to see, you know, what the implications of even a situation like that could be. But um, yeah, but it is difficult, you know, when you're starting a business. I think all of us have started businesses and, and it's a struggle. And, you know, I, I recall, I had this great plan. I'm a financial guy, so I should have a good cash flow. I should have a model. And, you know, when I started my practice, you know, my wife bought in. We knew everything we were going to do. And three months later, I had to go and say, well, honey, we've got to put a little more into the business because I didn't get it right. You know, I had to make a payroll. And, you know, many years down the road, it's it's certainly paid off. But I think everybody goes through that as a small business owner. Do you think that the, tough, the best tough approach? Discussion. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm sure. Dang it, I was ex expecting to buy a car at this point. Yeah. Um, do you think a smart approach for the? I mean, I'm thinking businesses in that early trajectory, like us. I mean, my, my studio is a is a great example. I mean, we're brand new. We're we're very much a startup, if mm -hmm. you will. Even though I've been here for a few months, but it's in its early phase of business. And it, it seems like that what you might want to do is, even though you you're meeting with a financial planner or CPA periodically, it almost sounds like that it's probably a wise thing to do. Like I mentioned, I, when you mentioned how much it typically costs on an annual basis to meet with the CPA, $1,200, $1,500, it might seem like a lot to stroke a check for that. But I mean, if you kind of build that in in the early phase where I've got to set aside $100 a month, almost like a cell phone bill or some sort right. of other bill you're having Insurance to pay policy, so that you can yeah. then have that fund for right. that 
right. particular cost. Right. And, and for a lot of our clients, we have a program where we come up with, these are all the services we'll provide and we bill them a monthly retainer so they don't get hit with a big bill when we do both their individual and personal and planning and all that at one time. They can pay for it throughout the year. And usually we build in that free consultation as well. So they're picking up the phone or they're shooting an email. They're asking questions that for us maybe take five or 10 minutes to answer. But if they didn't ask that question, they might have some significant tax problems. So we really try to cater to that small business owner, help them budget for that. And they use the service that they really need. That's really cool because I think a lot of times people don't think that they, if they want to ask their accountant a question other than about their tax uh, return that they're going to get billed. Sure. And then what is that going to charge? And then the predictability of budgeting goes out the window and then can I afford it? That really smooths the edges out. It does. Well, it sounds like that's probably one of the best things to try to do is not to make the mistake of feeling like I can't afford it. It sounds like that the cost is actually fairly approachable. And and I know I I sat and thought, I probably can't afford one yet. I'm going to have to do the best I can. So I'll probably be linking up with you forward. <laughs> I look forward to that. <laughs> it's almost like you can't afford it. I mean, you, yeah. you, you can't, can't afford, afford not, not to. to. Yeah, yeah. Because it's almost insurance. I mean, if you, if you, if you run on, if you run aground on your own and then you have to pay to get sort of bailed out administratively, then how much is that going to cost? I mean, instead of us, as Chet had said, get it, get it done early and often. And then it just sets up some really good foundations for you to run your business on. I know that's what Dave is always talking about with clients, whether it's a, as a personal, you know, a consumer or a, a business client, you know, the, the foundations that have to be there, we're reinstalling foundations that never arrived. Right. And, and, and trying to get them some stability so they can start seeing the real value of their business take off. Right. And I think uh, once you have the right foundation from a tax code standpoint, you know, you kind of look further down the road and ask yourself, am I looking to use this business as a cash flow model and, you know, take a lot of money out of it and save for my financial future that way? Or am I actually looking to sell the business down the road? And at some point in time, you may take a little bit of a different path because looking to sell a business, there are probably more requirements that you're going to need. For for example, it's going to have to be more than just you. You're going to have to have employees to help transition the business and work in the business after you're gone and maybe a little bit better financial statements for the buyer to look at. You know, if a buyer is coming in, you know, what are they looking at? You want to look at your business as if you're the buyer and look at, you know, what's the product? What's the customer service look like? What are the people like? And what kind of financial systems and information does the business have? If you can focus on those four separate pieces of your business and try to be as objective as possible, and unfortunately, you have to be critical of yourself, and you got to say, what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? And look at this business as a buyer. By doing that, you'll better position the business for sale down the road. I I guess from a... From the perspective of like me, right right now, I mean, I guess my ultimate end game, if I were having to, you know, someone put me on the spot and said, what do you want to do? Do you want to transition this to heirs or do you want to sell at some point? I guess for me, I would love to be able to build it to a point where I could sell. But I mean, I mean, from a structural perspective, because it sounds like how you have your business set up, the type of corporation that you choose, those types of things that relatively early on, you kind of need to be on the right trajectory with those items, particularly if you're going to sell it. Sounds like that's the that's a really you got to have the right type of corporation, or you can really complicate the transactional phase of that. I guess. At what point do you think you really kind of need to start trying to get an idea of what you want to do with your business? I mean, how early on into the life cycle of the business do you think you need to have a plan before it's really cumbersome to try to change directions if you have to? Well, I think step one is just setting up the business from a flexibility standpoint, like Chet said earlier. I can be a cash flow business or I can sell my business. I I started up. I'm an LLC. I have ultimate flexibility. Okay, check the box, step one. And you can run your business for six months, a year, 10 years without really necessarily having to commit to step two of saying, hey, I really want to sell this business. I want to position it for sale. And we always talk to people that come to us and say, I want to sell my business. And I say, well, when? Well, next year. No. That's not going to happen. You may sell it, but you're not going to get the price that you want. You know, typically selling a business, it's a planning phase. It takes three to five years to put the the right people 
the right financial systems in place just to get the information because typically a buyer is looking back two, three years from a historical financial standpoint. So, you know, if you kind of count back, well, it's going to take me a year or two to get everything really in place to start growing the business or start really producing the results I want. And then I've got to count years one, two, and three after that to show the growth curve. Then all of a sudden, now I'm ready to try to sell the business. So that's really when step two comes along, when I'm five years out from even thinking I'm going to sell the business. Where do you usually see some hurdles coming into play? What usually trips people up, do you think, when it comes to that? Ah, geez, I thought I had a successful business. It seemed like it would be something that I could sell and make a lot of money, but now you're telling me I'm not in a place to do that. Where do you see those hurdles usually coming? Usually, we deal with a lot of service-type businesses or a lot of professional-type businesses, and when the owner is, you know, they are all the goodwill. I mean, they have all the client relationships. They have all the knowledge. They There's really, there's not much to sell because... You know, they are it and they're not they're selling the themselves, right? <laughs> they, they want to move on. So, so I think you've got to get, especially in a service business, you've got to get some scale where you've got some other folks that are there serving clients that can stay with the business, continue to serve those clients that, you know, may be acquired by the purchaser. I think that's many times uh, where some of my small business clients, it's a, it's a creative person that's doing web design or doing something and they're doing it all themselves and they do have great relationships and they've done great things. But at the end of the day, they really don't have anything to sell to just some, a client book. Yeah. Which, which it's <laughs> yeah. not mailing list. It's yeah, not a, basically, yeah, yeah, it's not a recurring revenue model right. where, you know, in some more professional services from maybe it's something that people have to come back to every year. So possibly that customer list has some value, but, if it's a business where you're doing a lot of one-off things, then maybe there's not a whole lot. You've built something successful. It's supported your family or it's supported yourself. But when you go to sell it, there's not much to sell. So building an infrastructure, building momentum with that infrastructure and all of that is is usually important to be able to sell at least a service business. And it sounds like you've got to be more than a boutique that has two or three people in it. I mean, you to be able to do what you're saying, where it has a bit of mass that will continue generating revenue, even if you're on vacation or bought out and you're not around anymore. This, this is my view. When you as a business owner step back and say, this place can run without me for an extended period of time, then you've probably built an asset that has value to somebody else. I got you. What about the point when we talked about earlier, we launched on the, the company that was selling out and had the good fortune of being purchased and sounds like for a pretty good price to be able to have everybody gain from that. What about trying to determine what multiplier, if you will, how do you determine what it's actually worth? Because I would imagine there's probably a few hand wringing types of conversations where it's like, what I, I really think it's worth X, Y, Z and, and the experts that are sitting around the table that go through this all the time go, oh, it's probably, probably not <laughs> that amount as anything whether you're selling a home or buying a business it really comes down to how much somebody's willing to pay you for your home you may love the home it may be in a great neighborhood maybe on a great street but you finally have to find a buyer that's going to pay you number one so it's it's worth what somebody's willing to pay you first of all there's obviously metrics that a lot of businesses use, and it depends upon the in- industry and how big the business is. Obviously, an industry that is less service-based, more product-based, is going to be worth more on a times a net income times a certain number. The larger the firm, you know, if you're less than ten million in sales. There's a break point once you get above 10 million, once you get above 50 million, once you get above 100 million dollars, you're more valuable because the buyer is coming in and saying, not only do I want to buy the revenue and I want to buy the net income, but I want to buy the infrastructure that you have. It's a totally different type of company that can run $100 million a year versus someone who can run $5 million a year. And that's really what they're buying is the ability of this recurring revenue stream, this recurring business model. And it amplifies what Chet said earlier that a $100 million a year business isn't focused on one person, whereas a $2 million a year uh, business is. Mm-hmm. And as far as determining, because from what I understand, a lot of how they go about setting a sales price, I've never been through the 
side of selling a business. Um, from what I've heard, it's basically a multiple of your EBITDA, your your earned income before taxes and all of that, that it's three times, four times, five times, or God forbid, it's six or seven times if you're really got mm-hmm. something rocking. And how does, how does that play in terms of being able to set something that's realistic and a win-win for buyer and seller? And I think some general guidelines is a small privately held company three to five times cash flow. It depends. There's financial buyers and there are strategic buyers. A strategic buyer, they're already in your business. So there's more value there because let's say you've got two, you've got a controller and their company has a controller. Well, maybe you put them together and they only need one. So, so there's a strategic buyer has a lot of opportunities to save money once they put the business together as well as to grow your customer base and your product. So, so a strategic buyer, there's potentially more value there when they buy it. So someone that is in your business that wants to buy your business, there's probably more value there. A financial buyer is just buying it potentially to put their management team in place to run, to make money. And so they don't have the opportunities to save a lot of money when they put, you know, two businesses together. So that's kind of the finance, the financial buyer. So, so the financial buyer probably is willing to pay less because they don't have the strategic opportunities that somebody else that's already in your business is. Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of the two two types of buyers you see out there. Now, with with your your businesses, do you all? Because uh, I know that one of the things you do is um, outsource CFO services. You work with a company to provide that level of expertise and and you know probably in the end save them money because they're not having to have somebody that's on on site in house all the time. But do you go so far as to to advise on? Someone wants to grow. They think they want to. There maybe there's a. You, you talked about the fact that there's some financial buyer, but there maybe they they see another business that may be even bigger than them. I uh, the company that I used to be a part of in Oklahoma, they bought a company that was I don't know, several times larger than them. But do you get into we should probably grow organically versus yes, it would make sense to actually purchase another growth through acquisition. Entity. You yeah. mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean when you go through your strategic planning on a five year and yearly basis. That's one of the questions that you're looking at. Absolutely. What are your goals? You start with, where do I want to take the business I have? And part of that process is looking at, can I get there through organic growth? Can I get there through acquisition? And what's the risk that I take on by buying someone else? And if if we're looking at the buyer side of the equation now, you know, the risk really is, what is the business I'm buying? Is the owner going to take a lot of the business away? Is there going to be a cultural change problem meshing two different cultures together? That's what we ran into. Right. How much money am I going to pay down? How much money is going to be technically in an earnout, so to speak? I'm going to pay you $10 for your business, and if everything works out great, I'll pay you an extra $5 as an earnout. So structuring a purchase is very valuable planning that you do on your side because again whether you're running your personal finances or you're running the business finances you want to grow but you want to do it with as little risk as possible when does it make sense i mean it seems like there would be some measure of risk in buying when i guess the biggest benefit that you get from buying through acquisition is pace of growth i'm I'm zooming forward because now all of a sudden I'm either doubling or maybe some other multiple of over where I am today versus organic growth. So I guess that's the big piece is what are the risks that I'm I'm taking on to have this faster pace of growth? Yeah, I, I think you're taking on, I mean, obviously you're either putting your cash into this new business, so you're deploying your cash into instead of investing in your business, buying this business, but many times it's debt. So you're taking on additional debt. You know, there's significant risk there. Um, there's the risk of, of like, as David said, putting the cultures together. There's the risks of making the new customers happy. Will they like you? Will they like your product? Um, you know, that those are some significant unknowns. Um, you know, there's, there's just a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of upside too, but from what I have seen, you know, a lot of these acquisitions, they, they just don't, they never turn out as well as they look on paper to begin with. There's always something that happens. So even if you're planning on growing through acquisition, you know, take the most conservative projections, take the most 
conservative shrinkage of customers or loss of, you know, and just plan for that because that's probably what's going to happen in some way or another. Yeah, that some some measure of client shrinkage is where mm-hmm. they go, they go and employee off. shrinkage too. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 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 they won't. They won't the, like your benefits. They won't <laughs> like your coffee. I mean, that there's was all our kinds experience. Of crazy was the two companies came together? They just came from a different different kind of culture. One was a family business. Ours was more of a family owned business. We were buying a large national business that that company was wanting to offload, and we grew from I think it was 14 offices to I don't know it was like 35 or 40. It's um, a lot. Yeah, and so they change. were significantly larger than us, and and it was it's, we don't do it that way. That oh, whole. Right. But if you're interested in selling, I mean. You know, if you're at the top of your game, that's the best time, right? But what happens is many, many people are excited by their business. It's doing well. It, something happens. It takes the wrong turn or something happens in the industry. The, the business begins to shrink. The owner loses the excitement and then they start thinking about or considering (laughs) selling. And that's, and, and, and they have in their head what they think their business is worth or what it was worth. And now they're dealing with the realities of this is actually what someone's willing to pay. So that's why planning, as David said, is so important. If you're going to sell your business, it has to be part of a long-term plan to make sure you're selling it at the right time. Now, what about the the whole notion? If someone is listening, they have a business, maybe a, uh, probably more often than not, it's going to be a mid-sized business. I guess some small businesses can stru- structure the ESOP, that employee stock option plan, that where the employees have some ownership of the business. But what's the process like for getting into that? And, you know, outside of just being... Uh, I guess, if you will, generous. You talked about how the the business that you talked about when we opened the show, they were very generous to, and really wanted their employees it's to a benevolent culture there right. for sure. Yeah, but I mean, uh, are there are there other benefits outside of that to to going down that path, or is it just mainly I really want my employees to to gain benefit? And how hard is it to go through setting that up? And when is there a kind of a threshold? above which you have to be to, to do that? Yeah, th- I think the ESOP, if you're looking at it, has some tremendous benefits uh, from a tax-saving standpoint because if the ESOP actually owns the company and buys it from the original shareholders, it can pay little or no tax on the earnings, and it's too complicated to get into over a, a conversation here. But you do go into a very technical field, and so... Minimum size business would probably be at least $10 million a year in sales to really go down that path. Mm -hmm. If you want your employees to benefit and you're smaller than that, there's a lot of other planning opportunities using, you know, phantom stock or just profit sharing, straight contractual profit sharing that you can have. It doesn't have the real upside benefits of an ESOP from a tax referral basis and those things. But again, you've got to look at the cost versus the benefit as well. If you're a small business, you may not necessarily be growing, but you want your people to participate. Sure, give them a profit share. Give them some phantom stock. Give them some options in the ownership of the business. You get above the $10 million level. You feel like there's some true benefits in the tax savings. You feel like you're growing. Then it's time to possibly consider you know, using the ESOP, and typically what happens is the founding shareholders or the current shareholders are going to sell a portion or all their stock to the ESOP. And one of the benefits of using an ESOP, if if the existing shareholders continue on as employees, they are still considered a part of the ESOP as well. And so you do get that proverbial second bite of the apple as the business grows, too. How long does the ESOP has to be have to be in place before the employees say they say they get purchased fairly soon after uh, an ESOP is in place? How long does it need to be there before those folks will benefit from that? I mean, is it does it from inception? You mean from yeah? I mean, is it once the ESOP is in place and the business is sold, say it happens next year, does it basically then just allow that employee base to then participate on some share ownership level? They would. I mean, one of the great benefits about having an ESOP is on both sides of the equation. There's a vesting period as you earn your shares in the ESOP over time you're still subject to a vesting period. Okay. And so if you don't stay, you know, that's why employee retention is very good in an ESOP because, hey, I've got these ESOP shares and they're being allocated to me and I'm not having to pay anything for them. And 
Obviously, the goal is to sell the business one day down the road. Well, you may have an employee base of 25 or 30 who have been there, and the ESOP happens in 2015, and the business is it's 2020, and we're all going down the road, and all of a sudden, a new employee comes along in 2021, and there's a five-year vesting period, and they've earned 1% or 20% of their overall shares. Even though they're not going to get all their shares, they're still going to be vested in the 20% that they earned because the business sold. So vet the vesting occurs upon sale of the shares that you've actually earned. So, again, you kind of get into a lot of technicalities, and you certainly would need an expert in ESOP, transactional, valuation, accounting, and the tax. That's not a program that you want to do without having all your ducks in a row and being large enough to really gain the benefits of it. But it's for those companies that do it, it can be a tremendous transaction. Now, you mentioned some other options for a business that's not quite that size, maybe the smaller, uh, under $10 million businesses like stock, uh, phantom stocks and things like that. Um, I mean, what's the process that you want to go through? I mean, I guess it would be are there, there's probably some tax ramifications for those different options. If I want to be able to, I guess, make it feel, or, you know, I guess make it not just feel, but be that my employees do have actual some measure of ownership or get to, be treated in some level like they are part owners. Are there tax benefits for for those different types of things? Or I mean, there could be. Again, it, yeah, it's it's fairly complicated to decide or which kind of road you want to go down. But I think for the small business owners that do want their employees to feel like owners, I think things like you know phantom stock or profit sharing, things like that. Although they're not truly, you're not handing over shares of stock to these employees. They are concerned about serving customers well, keeping costs down, and all of those things. Uh, you know, making sure the right team players get on the team, because all of those things are going to impact the profits, which therefore then will impact their ability to have part of the profit share, or have through the phantom stock program be able to get an allocation of some of the earnings of the business. So. So I, I think in a, as a business owner, I kind of like those plans a little better because I'm not giving up control of the, the company, but I am giving the employees a vested interest in the success of the business. And they know if the business does well this year, then they will do well as well. So I, I think that's for small businesses. I think those are some really good ideas to try to implement. Now, it's an uneducated question, so if it's if it's painfully obvious and I'm asking a goofy question, <laughs> forgive me, but where does, um, I guess, something like a, a 401k plan or something like that that I'm offering to my employees, that's that's over here, and the, the phantom stock and stuff like that, that's, that's separate and it's a totally different part or piece it, of the business. It can be, and it can't, you can have a 401k plan that has a profit-sharing piece to it. But, you know, employee, it's not as impactful to the employees because if you're a 30 year old person working hard at the company and you slap them on the back and say, look, I just put 15% profit share in your retirement plan. You'll get it in 35 years. <laughs> That's not as motivating, right? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. so it's a balance, um, that you do want to have good retirement planning in place for your employees. But I've also seen that good incentive plans, no matter how they come about, do allow employees to feel like they own part of the business and they they treat it like they're an owner. And it's good to see. If I'm if I'm the business owner and I'm implementing one of these plans, what's the typical range of expense for me? You know, if you want to talk about a percent of revenue or even a percent of profit, whatever the case may be, but. Where does that usually, if I have a phantom stock plan, if we, we, we mentioned that before, for example, what does it cost me as a business, as a percent of revenue, do you think, to have something like that in place? You're talking about the implementation cost or well, overall? Well, just on an ongoing basis. I mean, you know, like. How it, much you're going to give to the employees every Yeah. Year. What am I, what's it right. going to cost my business? Because it's going to be a cost line of some kind. Well, you're certainly going to have to probably use a compensation consultant on the front side to get an understanding of how this is going to work with my overall compensation system, number one. Number two is you are going to have attorney's fees to draw up 
uh, a phantom stock program. So you're probably looking at $2,500 to $5,000 kind of as an entry price. And you're probably looking at 1000 to $2,000 a year just to make sure that you're dotting all your I's and crossing all your T's with your uh, accountant and attorney. Back to what Chet said earlier, you know, you can set up just straight bonus programs, too, that really don't take an attorney to write them up as far as a phantom stock program. You're just setting out specific goals. You know, for example, if, if Chet wanted to, he could set up a goal that said, OK, for every tax return you complete this year, you get an extra $25. Or if you complete the tax returns at in these this many hours, you get this bonus. And it can be as informal as that. And we've seen that sometimes the, the just the informal bonuses that get paid either monthly or quarterly seem to have more incentive base compensation do what the owner really wants right and because as chet said if you're 30 or 35 and you're putting money in a profit sharing plan that won't be seen for 30 years or remember if you're a minority owner in a privately held business what is that ownership really worth it may not be worth anything because if you're a minority shareholder they the company may not be paying out any profits it may not be paying out any dividends And so you've got to look at that. Do I want cash now? How does that cash impact behaviors today? Yeah, I've seen plans as simple as based on the uplift in revenue from year over year. So you can potentially share with your employees, look, we made a million dollars last year for every 1% in revenue we're up next year you'll get 1% extra on your base salary. And it keeps it really simple. You're not telling each employee, they can do the math themselves. So as a company, you can talk about we're up 5% and everybody knows, well, I'm at the end of the year, I'm going to get, if I make $50,000, I'm going to get a $2,500 check. That is awesome. So they're all excited. They all know what their numbers are because they all can do the simple math. And I've seen plans like that work really well at businesses because you can all talk about it corporately, but you're not talking about individually what each employee is going to get, but they know what they're going to get. So a plan as simple as that. And certainly you, you might want to put a cap on it, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. but, but then you might not because it may be so profitable for the business to add all that extra rep, but that's where it comes from, from business to business. But, but as David said, putting a simple, bonus incentive plan in place could be could be something that really now you've got a bunch of people acting like owners every day they show up. And one of the reasons why I thought talking about that kind of stuff was kind of useful for our particular conversation today because one of the things that, you know, kind of the overarching focus of today's discussion was around buying and selling businesses. And as Joe mentioned, when we first started talking about the ESOP that was selling and those employees were coming into to money, many of those employees had been there for years and years. And so if you're putting in place some of these types of plans, as a, even as a small business owner, and you get your employees very motivated, but then also make it that much harder for them to want to leave just because they don't want to give up that nice perk. Because I can tell you, I, I've not been with a whole lot of businesses that are paying out that kind of, you know, either profit sharing or things like that. I mean, there may be bonuses based on your compensation plan if you're in sales or something like that, but not truly. If our company does well and you're helping it do well because you're a customer service person, maybe you're not driving sales so you don't get a bonus, that's useful at all levels Mm -hmm. and maybe helps position you for that sale and make you that much more valuable on the sales end of things when it comes time for someone to buy you. Absolutely. There's another factor too that we've kind of ignored a little bit. I mean, we've been talking about ESOP and companies that have large amounts of employees, but what about when you have maybe a partner or relatives in the business? And, you know, what, what, uh, I guess complications, precautions and or, you know, positive steps can be made to, you know, because there's a lot of emotion in those kinds of, uh, arrangements. Yeah. So, I mean, I would probably look at these guys for maybe a, a tip or two on that too. Well, hopefully as we set up a business early on, one of the absolute keys to have is a shareholder agreement whether it's a partnership agreement or if you're a corporation, a shareholder agreement, which really defines the buy-sell provisions between partners and between shareholders. And you want to do it before the business gets huge. You want to do it before 
the partner no longer is active in the business and you feel like you're pulling all the weight. And you define very clearly based upon many different methodologies, hey, when can I buy you out and for how much money? Mm-hmm. And so by doing that, it's a little bit easier. You, you, even though it will be emotional, you try to eliminate as much emotion as possible by putting it more into a formula based uh, from a partner standpoint. And then you mentioned the other thing. What do I do if I have family working in the business? Well, the best way to help you in that regard is to hopefully not have family working in the business. It, uh, <laughs> just from the get-go, what we see there's is a very limited number of uh family relationships that work extremely yeah, they, well they in really business. become divergent at that at that mm-hmm. point in the game I guess. a lot of times you you hear about too many horror stories so make make your life easy and happy wife happy life and she's going to go do what she's good at you're going to go do what you're good at and hopefully the two shall not meet in the business world <laughs> that's fairly well defined right there i mean I, I don't know what else to say after that so using using our our studio as an example we have four people that are basically partners equal share so what you're saying is the the best thing to do is sometime pretty soon be able to say if and when it comes time for one of us to to cash out what does that mean in terms of uh buy out what do they what do, what would they receive if they want out and and um and, and or if we sell the business or you know are we going to sell I guess you got to define everybody's willingness to go, to go through that or you end up having to do it well all right all in favor, say aye, that kind of thing. I think you have to Try work to that, that out. out. I think you have to work those things out early, real early, if not right at the beginning. I mean, everyone wants to jump in and throw 50K in the pot and say, all right, we got enough here to get going. But we even, you know, we've come across clients, you know, even recently who, you know, they didn't have agreements in place and, and some they all kicked in money and then they realized one of the partners wasn't really a cultural fit. And now that partner's saying, well, I won't sign after the fact, you know, they're pushing around agreements saying, hey, we should all kind of put this down on paper now. And it's a little too late. Horses out of the barn. And now they're in irons a little bit with each other because they're trying to figure out how to all go their own separate ways and still keep a business together that has clients and so on. So I think you, you have to yeah, move I, early. I agree. Yeah. I mean, when I have clients come into my office and they're saying they're going to start a business, if, if they're going to be the sole owner, then no problem. Yeah, set this up. Go to the Secretary of State. You know, sorry for the lawyers out there, but you can set an LLC up usually on your own, at least here in Georgia, pretty simply. Mm-hmm. But if they come in here and say, you know, look, we're I'm going to have a partner, I just say stop right there. We'll we'll talk about some of the tax implications, but you need to get an operating agreement. You need yep. to understand the rules of the road before you go down this road of being partners together. Because I, from what I have seen. You know, unfortunately, marriages seem to be e- more easily <laughs> separated than business partners. Yeah. I mean, it's it is really difficult and it can be really difficult, especially if things have gone wrong. So um, having the right operating agreement, shareholder agreements, partnership agreements in place before you even start, you know, looking for that first client or customer is vitally important or before you put the first dollar in. Yeah. Well, we have a couple of minutes left. Any parting thoughts before we let you all get back we burn up an hour pretty quick here yeah we did yeah well <laughs> it, it really uh, i, I like the way the conversation went today it, there were some really cool gems in here and uh like i said we all work together and these two guys have been working together now for several years so um, they have a lot of great anecdotes and examples of how things work out there and how they can be good if you just do the right things right for yourself so I, all i would say as a parting comment is you know, seek out, you know, build a team, you know, we're big on that. And, you know, we, we think building a team is important and, and that team is, you know, financial advisors, that team is accountants, attorneys, you know, psychotherapists, if that's part of the gig, you know, but, but build your team and, and be proud of it and, and work with them and make sure they all work together. Right. Mm-hmm. This is what makes these two guys work well together is they, they get along, they work well together. So when clients are passed back and forth for professional advice, it works very well. I'm glad I asked that question as far as what does it cost to have uh, financial professionals like CPAs and, and, and others on board with your 
even your startup small business because I think that I know I did. I, I presume that it was probably going to be out of my reach. Um, and so I'm really pleased about that. And, and obviously some great advice for that uh, early business. If you do have partners to, to set out on trying to get things ironed out about what do we do if we sell? What do we do if, if someone needs to or wants to back out of the business? And how does that get handled and, and all of that? Right. You know, it's when you're setting up your business, it's kind of the honeymoon, right? So things will go well. You will agree to things that are reasonable. You'll get them in this operating agreement. So so that is the time. And I'll tell you, if it's not going well at that point, <laughs> then you probably shouldn't get married right, and, right, from a business right. standpoint, yeah. because if it's not going well, then early on when you're trying to just agree to these basics what should be simple things, it's going to get really bad down the road. Tell tell folks where they can go to get more information about Burgeon Associates. Yeah, so our website, birdcpa.com. It should give you information, bios, all that you need to know. We're in Decatur, Georgia. We focus on small businesses anywhere from 100000 in revenue to $15, 20000000 is probably our sweet spot. And we, we also have a, a good nonprofit practice as well. We help a lot of nonprofits in the area. So, And your website is ircwealth.com? It is. Yep. And they also are linked in on uh, all the social media sites that you want to visit. We're tied in with it as well. If you're checking out the podcast, you've not done so already, go to the upper left-hand corner of the show page. You'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you over to the iTunes store. We're also broadcast on iHeartRadio now, so you can find us there. So that's kind of cool. We were really excited about that. That and is cool. Turn around and share this with your networks, man, because you may just put some information in the hands of somebody that you care about that really makes a difference for them and their business. So we hope you turn around and help us spread the word and introduce them to these financial experts that we're talking with. You here, Joe and Dave, and, and of course, Chet, my, my newfound friend here. I really appreciate you guys making time to come out today and share some information. And for all the folks out there today who made us a part of their day, we want to say thanks so much because your time is very important to us as well. We'll see you all same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. 